Talk. Hold on, we're getting a call right now. You know who this is? I'm going to tell you who this is. We're getting a call from Bruce Baum. We're going to take this call right now. Not to be confused with Lip. Yeah. No. Hello. Nobody. Bruce, is that you? Let me look. Yep, it's me. Can you, <laughs> can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. I'm using my home phone. You know, if, is this sound okay? Because I can call on my cell. <laughs> does, it have, does it have a rotary? No, but just you know, there's less chance of it cutting out. And uh, we're fine, buddy. We're fine. So let, let me let me introduce you uh, to uh, our listeners to the show. Uh, here's who we have on the phone. We have a guy who I knew who him before I ever met him. I knew who he was and I liked him before I ever met him. A long, long time ago in a land far, far away called Pre-Comedy Boom, before there was a comedy club in every city in America, there was a show on television called Make Me Laugh. And it was hosted by a guy named Bobby Van, who was a song and dance guy. And I don't have time to get into what a song and dance guy was. The premise of the show was an audience member would be put in a chair, okay, and then comics would come out and their job was to make them laugh in one minute or two minutes or less. The longer they went without laughing, the more money they won. And it was a great show because it was an interesting premise. And the comics were funny. And hardly anyone ever re really won any money because the comics could make them laugh. Especially this guy, who went at the time by the name Bruce the Baby Man Bomb. And he was a dead ringer for David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Our Crosby, Stills & Nash. Our Buffalo Springfield. He was a dead ringer for that guy, and he would come out in a diaper, but his stand-up was funny, and I used to watch him on television. Many years later, I got the privilege to meet him, and he's on the line right now. Bruce, how are you? Pretty good. How about you, Tony? Well, I'm doing fantastic, and I can't tell you, um, when you and I talked, when I ran into you again at a charity event here in Phoenix, uh, and I thought, wow, how long? Then I realized how long I've known you, how many different levels our relationship's been, and how you were always... You were someone who, when I'm sometimes as an opening act, as a beginning comic, you meet headliners and headliners are kind of rude or kind of mean. You were always open and gracious, you know, and I've known you for years and I talked about having the show, so I'm thrilled that you're on, man. Uh, I'm blushing. I should also mention that I do go out sometimes. We all go out as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Bomb. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> Uh, you may, you, uh, by the way, uh, you're on the air with me and, of course, uh, my co-host, uh, DJ Jazzy Payne. So, uh, uh, that's, and by the way, not his real name. And so, Tony's actually Tony One Kenobi now, in case you wanted to reference that later for any reason. I kind of like that. Don't you like that, Bruce? on stage, I'll have four stools. Yeah? Me sitting there, then next to me is a, a, a small little container of pharmaceutical pills, and next to that is a, a bag that I, I put oregano in, wink, wink, and then uh, a thing of dentine, and we go on as Crosby pills, stash, and gum. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, like I said, I knew who you were. You were on that show. Can you briefly tell us about being on that show and what that was like, and who else was on that show with you that we might know nowadays? I will do that. Let me tell you, that was... I personally, and I'll back this up in a moment, believe it was the show that started the comedy boom. I agree. Everybody was building at the comedy store. I mean, it was ready to, like, burst. And that was a wonderful, wonderful time. If you're watching, I'm dying up here. While I enjoy the show, and I really enjoy some of the people I know acting in it, it's, and we can get back to this, it's not indicative of the kind of comedy or people that were in the scene then. But uh, make me laugh came out and it was on Monday through Friday and they had the same guys on for five straight nights. 
So back in the, that time, if there was a guy that killed on The Tonight Show, and you went into work the next day and say, hey, did you see the guy on The Tonight Show last night? People said, oh, I missed it. You have to hope to be lucky in a couple months and catch him again. Well, with Make Me Laugh, it was, well, he's on again tonight. Check it tonight. And so through the week, the audience would build, and all of a sudden, clubs started opening up in, like, Detroit and Cleveland. And, and uh, Ohio and Michigan were really big back then with, as, with popping up new clubs. And they would basically use the guys from Make Me Laugh because we only shot two or three weeks in advance and they allowed us to plug our dates. So they were using, I'll tell you who did the show a, a lot, was Kip Adada, yes. uh, Howie, Howie Mandel did it, uh, Bob Saget, Chandling, uh, Denny Johnston, um, Howie, did I say Howie Mandel? Yeah. Howie Mandel did a lot. Uh, so there was... Uh, Mike Binder? Mike Binder. It was, it was all the guys that, that, that were like... When a room would open up, they would, you know, that would be the first eight to ten weeks where they make me laugh, guys. Wow. And then there were some guys from the East Coast that started penetrating. You know, guys like Scheidner, Rich Scheidner, great comedian. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it kind of started the boom. There was already clubs on the coasts, but there was no road, so to speak. So I think Make Me Laugh really helped, you know, push the boom along. Absolutely. You know, and it, it was right around that time when uh, clubs were... Disco was kind of going out of style, and if you, I talked with guys like uh, Mark Ridley and uh, uh, some of the guys that uh, owned clubs in Cleveland. I remember conversations with them a long time ago, and they go, uh, "Are uh, the guy who owned Charlie Goodnights in North Carolina?" And they all had kind of the same story. They were young guys that owned nightclubs, and they go to New York and I look at a talent. They heard about, they'd seen this TV show, and then they'd go to the comedy store, the Improv, and they'd see you guys live, and they go, "I wonder if I'll make any money if I bring this guy." to my city and it just blew up it just blew up and some of those clubs are still standing today mark ridley's comedy castle uh good nights in north carolina i mean these are legendary clubs where guys were able to go from five minutes to an hour you know and really develop their craft so i know that you were instrumental in it man it was very cool was it like a big deal you're doing the comedy store and then you just drive down to a studio someplace and go in and do this show yeah, it was uh, what I used to do. If you're talking about make me laugh, is the most people you were going to face in those five days was 25, because the most you were going to see is five per day. Uh, you know, if they sometimes they only got to four, but uh, I would have 25 one-minute segments set up backstage. I don't, I, maybe Vic, Dun Vic Dunlop is another one who did a lot. Yeah, of this. and he he did the same thing, and you would kind of judge because you didn't know who they were going to select. And I would kind of judge while they were walking down the stairway uh, which one-minute piece I was going to, you know, use on them. And sometimes they laughed so early that you didn't get the whole piece off. So you had it, I mean, we either started on the next person or saved it for another day. So uh, Bruce, I distinctly, this might be just my memory, but I, what I distinctly remember, you know, I remember I moved to Los Angeles in 1978. So I watched a lot of this from St. Louis, Missouri, where I was living at the time, you know, and there was this show, this cool show on at night. It was like for us, like Saturday Night Live was for was for us, you know, then, then your show was for. But I distinctly watched, remember you coming out. There was some um, some guest and you just looked at me. You went, you're going to laugh now. You're going to laugh now. And you didn't say anything except you're going to laugh now like four times and you just bust out laughing. <laughs> I did stuff then. I never I never did again. And I forget about, you know, I, I think I came out once, God, 
with a, I would I would go to to Toys R Us and spend like a thousand dollars. I would just go down the aisles and put stuff in the cart. Didn't know what I was going to do with it until I got home. I think I bought one of these small ovens, you know, that you, that you could cook like a, a kid could actually cook a easy muffin bake. In, easy bake oven. Yeah, yeah. And I came out. I put a saddle on it, and uh, and I and a cowboy hat and a whip, and I came out riding it. I would like jump up and down with it between my legs, singing "Home, Home on the Range," and uh, I would never do that on the road. <laughs> you know, and there was a young a young red red haired boy who was just a little kid sitting home watching you, going, "You know, if I change my name to Carrot Top." Oh. <laughs> Listen, you were hilarious on that. I want to, I want to uh, uh, fast forward a little bit. So you, the, you're the. So I'm. Here's a funny thing. I, I uh, taped. I'm dying up here. Uh, I enjoy Melissa Leo does a fantastic <coughs> job of the character who's based on Mitzi Shore. I don't know if it's Mitzi Shore or Mil- whatever it is. She is a standout on that show. I mean, I like the show because I kind of. I was in L.A. in the '70s. I know what it's like to live four in a one-bedroom apartment while you're struggling and all of a sudden someone becomes famous and you know the guy who's living in your closet becomes famous and and you're not and so I kind of empathize with a lot of what's going on with the show but as I was watching last night I was actually texting back and forth with Argus Hamilton who was at the store during that time so uh, I really was give me your take on the comedy store in the 70s when you were there and this incredible vortex of talent was beginning to uh, uh, come together. Well, when I was there, and again, let me qualify this by saying I, I enjoy watching the show, but it's not really an accurate historical piece. When I was there, and again, I always say that we were dancing in magic back then. We had no idea. The boom hadn't happened yet. A typical night at the store would be Letterman, Leno, myself, Shandling, Saget, Pryor would pop in. Uh, Howie Mandel. It was, but nobody was famous, you know. It was yeah. except for Pryor. So it, it was a very, there was a lot of camaraderie. Unlike the show, you know, guys were helping each other out. Guys would sit around in a room, and if something funny was said, uh, hey, are you going to use that? No, you go ahead and take it. And the next time something was funny, hey, do you mind if I do that? But there was no cutthroat. Oh, oh damn it! He got he got that show. I didn't. You know, it was more of an attitude, oh good, that guy just opened that door. If he does good, they're gonna come looking in the pond for more. So, uh, you, everybody, you know, you, you also built relationships. Mitzi Shore opened up clubs like in La Jolla and San Diego. And so you would go down there and spend the week with people, you know, that you you would see at the store every night, but you'd never normally hang with, you know? Sure. And, you, and just being with them for a week, Solid, eating all your meals, going to a movie, doing your shows. You kind of built up a relationship where you could, you know, not see the guy for a couple of years, and then it was like you saw him yesterday. Um, but you know, before there was a road, all those guys I just mentioned and other—I I know I'm leaving names out, Mule Deer. Uh, but you know, uh, so many. You, so you many for two years, you saw those guys every night, and then the road happened. And you ended up seeing them more on the road when they were playing another venue than you used to see them back in L.A. every night. Speaking of the road, that's where you and I, although I, I had seen you on television, I'd seen you live, uh, where you and I got to know one another was literally on the road. We used to work 
together at the Maxim Hotel in Las Vegas. And also at the time, I owned a club in Oklahoma City. I, by the way, uh, I'd like to do a disclaimer here. If you're ever going to buy a comedy club, don't buy it in the place where people make fun of the place because they don't have a sense of humor. But I owned a uh, comedy club in Oklahoma City and used to come out and play my club. And that's where you and I got to know each other personally. And you were yeah. you were so, you know, you were the headliner. You know, I would just start, I would just start to work. Vegas is like an opening act. And uh, you were so gracious, so funny every night. So there I met you on the road. And also by that time, now I don't know if I'm correct in this, but by that time, weren't you already uh, a character on The Simpsons? I did that like in the late 90s. I, yeah. I did an episode as myself, which was what validated me with my kids. Everything else I had done up to then, <laughs> you know, didn't matter. The was the night, you know, uh, that I was on The Simpsons validated me with my kids. How yeah, I got to that. That was, a, that was a shock to me because they called, you know, my agent said, uh, uh, you know, you've been offered the Simpsons. And I said, well, I need to go to audition. And I said, it's not an audition. They want you. I said, well, it doesn't matter what they're paying. But, you know, I grew up watching Looney Tunes. And when you saw Frank Sinatra or Bing Crosby in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, you went, wow. Yeah. That, that's going to forever. So, yeah, they had a comedy festival in Springfield. And it was Leno and Stephen Wright, my, Bobcat, and uh, Janine Garofalo. My biggest thrill in that episode was there was a poster for the for the big comedy concert in Springfield. And <laughs> me, the biggest compliment was I wasn't the bottom name. <laughs> <laughs> Who was? You know, I forget. I just went, holy <laughs> mackerel, look at that. I'm not even the bottom. I'm not even on the bottom. Yeah. That's why you don't <laughs> want to be the bottom name. Right, right. Who can remember? So you and I worked together in the 90s. Uh, we had you out, and we're going to have you out again soon. Uh, we're just saving up enough money so we can pay you proper. Uh, you uh, you came out here and played the uh, Tempe Center for the Arts for us. So you and I have uh, worked together a lot. Here's something I remember from the 90s, and if you want to talk about this, we would love to talk about this because it, it kind of upset me because I like you so much when I became aware of this. So I remember distinctly you and I doing a uh, being guests on an FM radio show in the 90s. You know, we both got up early and drove over to do uh, morning radio. And you were telling me about a book. And the name of the book was Letters from a Nut by a guy named Ted Fancy, I believe. And you said, I'm writing, Ted, yeah. So he said, he said, we're writing this book, but we're not telling anybody that it's us. And Jerry Seinfeld's to do the forward. And you were explaining the book to me. And I, I remember then getting a little upset going, God, that's a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? This is such a cool idea. And you show me a couple of letters. They were hilarious. So around the time you were, you and another gentleman were putting this book together, you were telling me about it in an offhanded way. Like, and after that, let's go get a burger. And are you going to go to the pool today? I'm not. I'm taking a nap. You know, just, hey, this is another thing I'm doing. So let's flash forward now, Bruce, if we can. Do you want to talk about this? You betcha. You betcha. Okay. Flash forward, I, uh, I run into you at a charity event in Phoenix a couple weeks ago, and then um, I see you pop up on Facebook, and apparently, and it's Barry Martyr, and I remember Barry Martyr, I remember him from Vegas, uh, Barry Martyr is on television with Jerry Seinfeld, where Jerry Seinfeld is emphatically, emphatically saying that Barry Martyr is the sole author of the Letters from a Nut series. And I'm sitting there, well, when I first, I think I first heard it on CNN a long time ago. I didn't pay much attention to it. It was like I was walking through the house and there's Seinfeld and, 
Yeah, and I go, I go, well, no, wait, I go, why are they saying that? They go, Bruce was involved. And I forgot about it. But now they're doing a play based on it, and they've been going around doing a talk show circuit saying they're the only ones involved and cutting you out completely. I don't understand this. I am totally perplexed. Why don't you fill us in on this whole deal? Well, you know, uh, and for people that want <clears throat> for people that want to see the video, the the the, uh, the easiest way is if you go to brucebaum.com, and that's B-A-U-M, or uh, uh, that that links right the, right when you get there, that links right to the YouTube <clears throat> the YouTube video. Oh, just let me let me let me say real quick. We we have posted the video on some of our stuff, and we're going to post it again today. But now go ahead. Oh, okay. well, that's the easiest way for your listeners to get it. Then. Yeah. So. Um, we wrote the book, and there'll be. A, and that, by the way, that video only scratches the surface of of a, what I would consider a fifteen year Kafka esque journey. But uh, I tried uh, as much as I can to get this resolved before it went public. But it's uh, the book was written. Uh, virtually all the live sessions for book one were at my house. Uh, or they started here, and then we would go over the mall. You know, if, uh, we wrote all three books together. Uh, the way uh, and you and Barry and Martyr it was Barry Martyr, and it was co-written in every respect. You could. What we would do is we would come up with ideas, we would jam on those, and then we would let's say there were there were five ide- ten ideas. Why don't you Why don't you tell people yeah, first what, what what the book what the book is? I mean, I know what oh, it is. Oh, okay. Okay, we wrote ridiculous letters to corporations and people with ridiculous requests and see if they would answer. And originally, my wife said, nobody's going to answer this. And to give you an example, we would write to, like, the Los Angeles Lakers, saying, I have a condition where my rear end has to be exposed at all times, but I'd love to come to a game, promise that I won't get up and cheer loud unless, you know, Shaq really dunks one. And... Uh, they wrote back, you know, and I said I would write <laughs> Ted Nancy. We wrote it as Ted Nancy because at the time I was doing a lot of TV and people would recognize the name and maybe even Barry's. So, but I said I would cover my rear end with cellophane so it wasn't, and they would write back, you know, who to see, that they would explain it to the section. Uh, <laughs> and, wow. Yeah, it, it, so the, it really is. Now, I also have to say when, when the book, when, Barry and I had been working on our projects together. We wrote on Sunday Comics and Comic Strip Live. Well, I was on America's Funniest People for two years, and every once in a while, we would I would bring in a piece that we both wrote, and it pay him, you know, because I'd say we're writing other stuff. But um, uh, where was I going with this? You were explaining the book, and then you guys. So, so now people understand what. So Barry, Barry says to me, "Why don't we write this book of uh, you know these funny letters and see if anybody answers us." And I told him, I said, you know, Don Novello, who a lot of people may know as Father Guido Sarducci, I said, he, di- he did this very politically oriented with a book called The Laszlo Letters. So I told Barry, let's do our due diligence. If that's the only book like this out there, I really don't want to do it because I don't want to ever be considered derivative. But if it's a genre, even a small genre, let's go for it and just make sure ours is the funniest. At least that's our goal. Um, so we went to libraries, we went to bookstores, the internet was kind of in its infancy then, but we found out that people had done it throughout history, and other books had been written like that, so, so I, we went ahead and did it, and we just made these ridiculous letters, 
and uh, we got responses that we never thought. We, I mean, we got responses back from the king of uh, of uh, Tonga. Uh, <laughs> it, it's so. It really is laugh out. I hate to say laugh out loud because that's a LOL funny book. Is, I've read I've read the book and it's hilarious. You know, I mean, you and it's educational. I didn't know there was a king of Tonga, but I didn't know, and then I read the book. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and, and, it, and if you read about Tonga, it's very rare that he even, you know, does anything outside of Tonga, let alone answer. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, See, we, we were, uh, and we were having a great time. Uh, we were sending the letters, getting them back. We never really had an argument. I'm going to preface this with that I can remember. Before there was a solid offer on the table, we had the age. You know, while, while we were writing the book, uh, Jerry saw the letters over at Barry's house, and Jerry I, Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld, and he uh, turned it on to his agent. We had thirteen publishers were sent the book, and we had like twelve offers right away. So we never had an argument until there was an offer on the table, and the way I remember it is we never really had arguments until each there was a solid offer on the table each time. So, <clears throat> but, uh, it was, so anyway, when we had these ideas, at the end of the day, after we jammed on them, we would split them in half. You know, I would take five, Barry would take five. And we would write down what we just discussed, and then we'd put our own, you know, pass on it. We would get back together, both take a pass at, the, at all ten again with, with what we did the first time and with what the other guy wrote. Then we would s- switch them so that we each letter got at least one pass by us solo. And then there were three passes at it together, the initial, the one in the middle, and the sign-off. When we both signed off on a letter and we both had to sign off, that's when it went out. So it was co-written in almost any... In, in the true fashion of the word co-written. It wasn't like I wrote five, he wrote five, and we put them all in, and we consider that co-written. And, and you, still, you still get royalties on, on the sales of, of some of these yeah. books. You're getting checks yeah. in the I, mail. I get royal. I, got, I get them usually in April and October, and, you know, it's royalties as an author of the book. We did a number of promote you know, radio shows where they had to harmonize our voices so they wouldn't recognize us. But we did those. I mean, there's lots of letters from not only the publisher, but from publicists. By the way, tomorrow you have this. There's a number of interviews that I have on tape of people that walked in while we were, you know, when we were playing the Maxim. People would come in, and they would, oh, yeah, Barry and, and Bruce had, uh, had all the letters, you know, strewn across the thing. They were putting them in chapters. So it, it amazes me their blatant disregard for well, contracts and law. Yeah. But overall, that forget about contracts and law because you can put thing in a le- you know people can put thing in a thing that says this never existed and you sign a thing that says yeah it never existed. But the reality is it did. So well, when everything else, when they go on television and they say nobody else, Barry wrote all of this. Barry's quiet because he knows that if he says well hold on hold on I, 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 want, I want to set the table for that a little bit. So there is now a, a live version of Letters from that I think, played at the Geffen Playhouse. Is that correct? Right. Was it the Geffen? Right. Okay, so the Geffen Playhouse with Barry Martyr, and there has been a, a, a slew of uh, uh, public appearances by Jerry Seinfeld and Barry Martyr on television, on talk shows, 
where Jerry starts out going, now it can be revealed who the author was and the sole single author is Barry Martyr. And you're right, Barry sits there and is very quiet. And I am perplexed and stunned that this is going on when it's so obvious. Look, you can look at Maybe it's they're taking a cue from Washington, D.C. right now where it's so apparent that there was Russian collusion. People, It's fake news that they're going out and saying this knowing full well that you were there. I don't understand why they're doing this, why they're trying to say that he is the sole author. You're still getting royalties. You were part of the book. Anybody who knew you back when you guys were working on a book, David Goodman, myself, you know, we all know you were talking about being involved with it. Why are they doing this? What is your thought? Well, that's a good question is why. You know, it's why is Jerry Seinfeld snacking on Bruce? It, uh, it, it, I, I can take a guess. I think everybody can guess why Barry is. But Jerry's just showing a total disregard, like I said, for reality, for contracts. Uh, and, you, you know, when you label another for a long time, when I went into meetings and said I'm the co-author and for four years before they went on TV and negated what I was saying, saying that I was the co-author, anybody went online to double check me to see whether I was telling the truth since it was written under a synonym, the first thing that came up was, you know, Jerry Seinfeld says Barry Martyr, not Bruce Baum, wrote the book. Then he goes on TV and says anybody that says otherwise, it's not true. I don't, again, I don't understand why Jerry would do that, especially knowing how important a hit is and what what having one hit can snowball into another so i'm presenting my evidence and letting the public um because basically the social media has actually made the court of public opinion a de facto branch of government because now everybody's involved instantaneously on what used to be filtered and shifted so yeah, well, you'd want to talk about fake news. We're going to want to follow this. Like I said, I'm, I'm perplexed and stunned that, that someone would come out knowing full well, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, we, you know what, I think we're going to try to track down Barry Martyr, and we're going to, we're going to ask him. We're, get you know, him on the pod. Yeah, let's get him on the pod. You know? uh, and Jerry, too. Why not? Oh, right? Jerry, yeah. too. Sure. And Jerry. <laughs> yeah. And Jerry, your spokesman. Yeah. Hey, Jerry, why are you doing this? I don't know if I said this already, but I'm taking this, I'm doing a documentary. Hopefully it'll be done by the end of next week, at least the rough cut. And uh, it's it's going to be the pilot for a show called Clear My Name, where, <laughs> where other people have an opportunity, whether they're a celebrity or whether they're a person in a small town whose universe is just as big to them as anybody else's, but people that may have been accused of embezzlement or harassment or anything else that they may have don't have the wherewithal to defend themselves. Look, our justice system is not set up for justice uh, because I can present my entire case in half a day and say dispute this, but someone with a lot of money or a corporation with a lot of money can extend it five years and you have to tap out monetarily. It's just, you know, you, you just go, I can't risk every my house and my family when when the justice system is is sure. rigged with a very and now I'm saying this firsthand. I, I never wanted to believe this, um, but uh, I may run for office and maybe make that part of my platform. Is that because I'm seeing it firsthand that that uh, and and you can go to Monsanto. I'm sure everybody's read other things where people just don't have the money or the press. Hey, look, I can't get TMZ to to carry this. 
So yeah. you, you, you go, Jesus, somebody's got an awful lot of power here, and you wonder why are you doing, you know, the, the closest thing I can compare this to is probably Lance Armstrong, because it's not like harass, it's just going after the person that's telling the truth harder and harder, yeah. you know? I think if Lance Armstrong come out and said, you know what, I did take steroids, sorry about that, I'm going to be writing for my charity this week, people would have been very forgiving. But I think the fact that he went after the person standing up and saying, wait a minute, and instead of saying, yeah, you're right, sorry, everybody was doing it, um, that's what I had to do to win, he tried to bury the, 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 the messenger of truth. So He did, you know, uh, and, it, and it took a lot of ball to do that. Uh, <laughs> Bruce, we got to go. We're coming up on a hard break. Uh, uh, we're going to have you on again soon. Like I said, you have you've uh, graciously come out and, and uh, uh, done our shows at the Tempe Center of the Arts. We want to have you back real soon because uh, you are uh, you're still one of the funniest guys in America, and I, I mean that. I don't. I can't convey what a, a kick and thrill it's been to have you on the show today. Because it is a guy who I knew who he was before I ever set foot in California. Saw him on the stage at the comedy store and go, oh, that's the guy from TV. Fortunate enough years later to be able to uh, work with him in Vegas. And then uh, uh, fortunate enough to be able to hire him uh, at my comedy club. And here, this is a heck of a story. This story is not going away. We're not going to let it go away. Uh, we want you to keep us up with updates. Anytime you want to uh, use this as a platform, let us know and we'll have you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to want to check him out. Google Bruce Baum. You'll find a storied career. He's literally one of those guys that when you see him go, oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. Or go to BruceBaum.com, B-A-U-M.com, and you'll be able to read all about Bruce, see some great videos, and see videos about this uh, perplexing story with Barry Martyr and Jerry Seinfeld because we are sitting with the co-author of Letters from Annette, Bruce Baum. Bruce, thanks for calling in, brother. Hey, big thanks. I encourage you to, you know, get Jerry and Barry on it, and big thanks to you, Tony, and your crew. All right, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. Me too. So what about that, huh? Yeah, super super interesting. And then did you hear the indirect shot he took at Jerry? Did you hear it? Well, he's not taking a... Well, well I mean, I guess it was direct, but he didn't, like, you did, he said something like, well, Jerry himself knows the importance of having that one big hit that Listen, brings you over. You know what no, I mean? No, like, he, it this, was, this wow. This is true. Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld's a very funny guy. and But I used to work a, a, a lot of clubs where... I was the headliner, and the week before it had been Jerry Seinfeld, or the week after Jerry Seinfeld. So Jerry was there. You know, he had, he'd had a, a, a sitcom that didn't work, you know, or was on Benson, where he uh, uh, was a, a sitcom in the late 70s, was spin up another sitcom. So he was a working comic. You know, I, I literally, I will tell you a story, and we got to go. I'm working a club in Cleveland. The guy who ran it was a little bent nose and never talked to any comics. Maybe he was scared to death of the guy. And uh, after my show one night, the manager goes, he went to see you in his office. I'm like, what the? Okay. And I go in, and the guy goes, I got a question for you. It's Cleveland, you know? And I go, I go, yeah. And he goes, he goes, and keep in mind, he goes, I'm not, I'm not, this is, I don't get your feelings hurt. He goes, I had Jerry Seinfeld in here last week for five grand. He goes, and I got you for 1200 This is like in 1988. He goes, I heard the same amount of laughs. So am I being fucking ripped off? I go, well, Jerry's been on Tonight Show. Hey, I'm going to need 2500 He goes, I, I don't know. He goes, I, he goes I, don't, I don't get it because same amount of people, same amount of laughs. I don't think. And then not too long after that, around that time, the uh, uh, Seinfeld Chronicles and the Seinfeld Show. So, um, huh. 
Who the hell is calling me from a 310 number? Mm-hmm. Uh, should I take the call? I can't take the call. We got to go. Yeah, we're already over. We're already over. Uh, we'll take a, a break. And then right after that, ladies and gentlemen, you don't want to go away. You don't want uh, to take us out of your browser because we got the McDanner podcast coming up on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. Far DJ Payne, Shirley Lovisic. My name is Tony Vizic. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.